The Bible reading today is from James 1, verses 19 to 27. It's found on page 1,881. James 1, verses 19 to 27. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intensely into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We had a little bit of a <clears throat> quick turnover there. If the preschool children in grades one and two haven't gone yet for Sunday school, um, you can. I couldn't see from the front if anyone went. But now would be the time. All right. Nice work. Um, passage, as we just read, um, thank you, Emily, I believe it was. Um, we're really focusing on the two main verses out of this, verses 22 and verse 27. 22 is kind of our introductory what should we do? How do we change our lives? What does God's word require of us? 27 shows us the practicalities of how to walk through that. And James tends to be a pretty difficult book uh, for people who read it because I believe it was Martin Luther who called it an epistle of straw. When it comes into uh, working and combining deeds with our faith, we get into sticky situations, and we'll talk about that, but James is really corroborated by the rest of Scripture. It doesn't stand out on its own. It's not an epistle of straw. And one of the places where we see this illustrated for us is in Mark 11. And so there's this story there of Jesus in Mark 11. He's, he's in and around the temple, having just come into Jerusalem. And we get the story where he spots this fig tree. And the fig tree appears to be in bloom. And it's not the season for figs. And so we know something... That, <laughs> is not going to happen. Something bad is going to happen here, but Jesus sees that there's leaves on the fig tree. He thinks that there's going to be figs on it because sometimes these trees can bear their fruit out of season. But once he approaches and he sees that there's no figs, there's only leaves and there's only branches, he realizes that in essence, he's been deceived. There's not a fig in sight. And it causes our meek and our mild savior to do something very surprising. That is, he curses the fig tree and it withers immediately. The disciples comment on it, and it never bears fruit again. The tree shrivels up and dies. And the message is extremely poignant. 
That is, all those who appear to bear fruit yet aren't are under God's curse and under God's wrath. And the way it corroborates our story and the way it corroborates James 1, verses 17 through or verses 19 through 27, is that we get the same warning from James. Essentially, what he's saying in this whole passage is, do not be like the fig tree. Don't deceive yourself. You see, so often it's easy for us to think that because we're in church, we're doing something good in Christianity, and it's good to go to church, but we think, eh, that's a badge for me. Or we look at our devotional life, and we think, I read X amount of the scripture, and I can give you the outline of Galatians, and I can do this. Well, I'm a pretty good Christian, but I don't think so-and-so could do that. Or we look at the length of our prayers, and we think those are evidence of a blossoming faith. But in reality, we might just be branches, trees with leaves bearing no fruit. And the root problem of that, I believe, and I believe that James gets at, is that we know what we've been saved from. We're so quick to be able to recite Heidelberg 1. We're so quick to be able to say, I've been saved through grace, by faith. I've been saved by Christ. And yet we forget what we're saved into. We think that's it. We think that everything should have emptied with the empty, empty, ended with the empty tomb. And we forget that we've been saved into an ever-advancing kingdom of God one that continues to go, and one that goes forward with our work, one that requires uh, our deeds. And so what James tells us here is that we must be living out our faith by showing evidence of a changed life. Or really, to put it simply, James says, if you want to have a pure religion, if you want to have true faith, we must be doing what Scripture commands. Now, before we go into that and try and exegete and understand this passage, please join me as we pray. Father, we're coming into your word, and it's a tall task, and so I pray that right now you call my spirits so that I can share what you have laid on my heart out of your words, and that you can calm all of our souls, that we can see that we are not as good as we should be, and that we can always be better, that we will never be perfect until the next life. Convict us of our sin. Convict us of our failings. Convict us of our deceptive religion and philosophy. And when you've brought us low, please build us up with Christ. Let him shine forth. Will you be pleased, pleased with the meditation of our hearts, the words of our lips, the things that are on our mind and our hearts? And will you take over now in the speaking and the receiving? And as we go out into our weeks, help us to apply through the power of the Spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, as I'm sure you realized... <clears throat> When the passage was read, there's a lot going on. But like I said, we're really going to be focusing on two verses, verses 22 and verse 27. And what James is telling us there, first of all, in verse 22, and how he opens up the passage, is we must be doers of the word instead of simply hearers. And right there, it sends a shot across the bow, a warning sign to all of us. This is not a message for unbelievers. Of course it is. They can hear and they can be changed by it. The Spirit can work through anything in Scripture. But more so, this is a message to the heart of believers. And it asks this question. We are meant to deal with this question and to wrestle with this question. Is yours a dead faith or is it a living faith? And there's one way to tell the difference. It's through your work, through your deeds, through your fruitfulness. 
Now, as I said before, it tends to get quite sticky in Christian circles because we're really quick to cry legalism or we love to say Phariseeism when someone says, oh, you should be living according to the law. You should keep the law. You see, I've heard, I'm sure you've heard, maybe you've said it as I have said this at times, you might say something along the lines of, I don't need to go to church because God's everywhere, isn't he? And so I go for a hike and I discover God in nature. Or we, we try to justify ourselves and we say, okay, that's fine. I, I, I know I'm not reading the Bible as I should. I know I'm not getting on my knees and praying. But you know, it's difficult. It's hard, isn't it? It's so difficult to get on our knees and to pray and to read our Bible. And so if I just force myself to do it, isn't it legalism? Because I've been saved by grace through faith, haven't I? But if I'm forcing myself to do it, that's not the yoke that Christ promises us in Matthew 11. We tend to justify our lives in this way. I'm not serving because. I'm not doing this because. We always have a reason why we're not doing what Scripture commands. But James makes no bones about it. He says, if you want to know if your faith is alive, if it's real, if it's rooted in Christ, you will produce works. That's the evidence of a changed life. That's the evidence of the Spirit and of Christ in you. Work. And so notice how James starts, and again in verse 22, he tells us, be hearers of the word, exactly what we're all doing right now. We're sitting under the preaching of the word of God. But he says, also be doers of the word. That is, it's good. Listen, hear, grow, take notes, whether mental or on paper, but it's useless if you don't take it, apply it, go home, and are changed by it. So, for example, is it to your credit to be able to recite the Ten Commandments, to know them inside and out, and then to get in the car and go, did you see what so-and-so was wearing? What is she thinking? Or to be able to tuck your kids in at night and say, do you know the fruit of the Spirit? And they say, yes, I do. And they recite them to you. And then you go to bed and you worry about their future. Is God pleased with these things? Is he pleased when we attend church and we say, I'm a Christian and I do this, and my goodness, I wish we had two services because I'd go to that too and I'd be a good Christian, and that yet we never crack the spine of our Bible at home. That's what James is getting at here. Are you putting your money where your mouth is? Are you walking? Are you living your faith? It's why John Calvin says, a doctrine merely heard and not received inwardly into the heart avails nothing. We must be living out, acting out what we hear, or everything you know, everything you hear, is utterly useless. For example, Jesus tells a parable about this. He says there's a father, and he has a vineyard, and he asks his two sons to go work in it. And the first says, absolutely, Dad, I will. And then he doesn't. And the second son says, not a chance, I'm not going to do that. But then he turns around and he does it. And the question is raised, which one did his father's will? The one who talked the talk or the one who walked the walk? Which one is more acceptable in the father's eyes? And of course, the answer is the son who said no and then did go and work. And that's James's first point here is that hearing must always lead to doing or the hearing was useless. It's why John Frame says theology is application. Or C.S. Lewis touches on this in in Mere Christianity. He talks about how knowledge without action, at least the premise of that, is like eating food and then spitting it out. If you've ever done that, it's really weird. But you know you get the taste of the food, but you get none of the nutrients. 
none of the nutrition. That's what it's like to hear the word and to not do it. And it's why Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, blessed are those who hear God's word and that's it. No, blessed are those who hear God's word and keep it. And he says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so we should all be challenged by this. We should all be convicted by this because what we're going to see later on is that this is all summed up by Jesus in two words. Be perfect. If you go into your scriptures, if you read the law, you should be utterly convicted. No matter how good you are, no matter how much you've done, no matter how close to Christ you are, you should be convicted that you are never doing enough. Be challenged by this. And we'll talk about how to do those things that are are spelled out here. But at the same time, I don't want you to be crushed. Neither does James. Because what's the underpinning to this is that you should also know that you will never reach heaven, first of all, by what you do, based solely on Christ. But it also means you will never reach heaven by how much you know. So that means that maybe you don't know the Belgian Confession. Maybe you don't know the Canons of Dort. Maybe you don't know the Ten Commandments off by heart. Maybe you're not a scholar with a great memory. Maybe you think that person is so much closer to the throne because they can say all this stuff. But understand that the strength of your faith is not proved in your talking. It's not proved in how much you know. There are a lot of godless pastors that stand behind a pulpit and preach. I am guilty of being one of them. It is about how you walk. You see, it's not what you know, it's how you love. It's something all of us can do no matter where we are in our Christian journey. And so let's look at how James spells this out. Well, when we zero in on verse 27, he tells us what a pure religion is. He tells us exactly how our faith should look. And he says, here is a religion that is wholly accepted, blameless before God the Father, one that is pleasing in his sight, and it requires two different things. The first is, remain completely and utterly unstained from this world. And the second one is, care for widows and orphans in their distress. And we can really sum those up. Jesus did this in Matthew 22, and I believe Mark 12, where he sums up the entire law into two commandments. He sums up the Ten Commandments in two commandments, and this is exactly what James is doing. He's saying a pure religion is love for God and love for your neighbor. And so let's break those up and let's look at them both first that's how James describes looking at James describes love for God, or as he puts it in verse 27, keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. Well, we won't spend too much time on this, but notice in verse 25, James calls the law both perfect, and he calls it the law of liberty, or depending on the translation, the law of freedom. And so as I said before, so often we love to cry legalism, don't we? When a pastor stands up here or somebody else stands up here and says, you need to be living by the law, you need to be doing more. And we say, that's why Christ died. Legalism. That's our initial reaction, and part of that is true. But the question then is, why in the world is James saying that it's the law of liberty? What, what can he possibly mean when James says the law brings us freedom? Well, the answer is that James is not describing how we're saved. Rather, James is describing how we live after we're saved. And so what he means by saying that the law is the law of freedom is this. God left none of us in darkness. 
but he gave us a way towards holiness. He gave us a path to walk. So, for example, if you are like me, you have someone in your life for whom it is impossible to buy a gift when it comes to Christmas or birthdays or anything else. It's, for me, my father. Every year since I can remember getting money from him to buy him a gift, (laughs) I said, what do you want? And he says, just save your money. And it's so frustrating Because if you're in that situation, you know, the point isn't that I want to get you necessarily something you want to make you happy. I want to express my love. I want to express my gratitude. And this is the way that I get to do that. And so for my family, three times a year, we get together and we go, did dad tell you to get nothing again? This is so frustrating. What do we get him? How do we tell him we love him? How do we express it? This is what we want to do. Three times a year, we get so frustrated by this. Imagine. Just imagine if this is what the Christian life was like. Imagine if you had no idea how to please God, what to give him with your life. Imagine if he saved us, if he set us free. We had no idea what he desired. Imagine if you've been horribly wronged or if you've been in pain or something has happened to you and you have no idea where to go for healing. Imagine the person with an addiction who can see their flaws and doesn't know what's right, doesn't know what's wrong, doesn't know how to walk forward. Imagine the person who is trying to pray or for yourself trying to pray. That's why we're having a conference next week, right? If the Bible didn't tell us or if we didn't have Christ's instruction. Imagine trying to live the Christian life, trying to explain this to your children, trying to find assurance for yourself after you've sinned to, to understand God's plan, to understand why people died, to understand why evil is in this world, why we're doing what we're doing, where we're going with it all, if we didn't have the Bible. Imagine how dark life would be, how difficult life would be. You see, this is why James calls the law the law of freedom, because it tells us point blank exactly what God desires, and it gives us an avenue, not the power, but an avenue to express our love to him. It's the map quest of the Christian life. It's saying, if you want to leave freedom, or if you want to leave slavery to sin, walk in this way. And then the good news to that is because of Christ's work, we aren't lost in the deadness. We can actually read that map. We can actually walk it. Because the spirit, of it, the spirit of God in our lives will take us there. And so what James is saying in saying to remain unstained from the world is that you must express your love for God in the way that he desires. When he says to pray in all situations, what do you think we must do? We must pray in all situations. When he says to leave vengeance for him, we must do so, and on and on and on. Not because it's our duty. Not because you're saved by it, but because that's the way of freedom. You see, James is telling us that for our lives to be pleasing to God, for us to be completely free in our hearts, our minds, and our souls, to go to bed with a clear conscience, then we must have no other gods before the Lord, but instead, as we've already said, to not just hear his word, to not just think that you are made holy by the hearing of the scriptures, but to go out and to do it. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, we must not be conformed to this world, rather we must be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
And so religion that is pure before God the Father is to give sin no quarter in your lives, but to seek in Scripture what God desires in every situation, to fall to your knees and to beg that he gives you the power to do it and then to stand up and walk in that way. Matthew Henry says, True religion teaches us to do everything as in the presence of God and to seek his favor and study to please him in all of our actions. Or as I said earlier, Jesus in Matthew 5, 48 drives it home in two words. You want to have a pure religion before God? Be perfect. So that's the first step. That's the first thing James describes here. Have a pure religion, cast away sin. Master it before it masters you. But the second step, James says, is to love those in need. First we love God, then we love our neighbor. Now you see, when we go through the Bible, we read something absolutely stunning. It's that God's primary care, God's primary focus is not for the rich, not for the powerful, not from changing things from the top down. God's primary focus is for the underprivileged, the oppressed, and the helpless. It shows us what an amazing and an awesome God we worship in a world of dog-eat-dog survival of of the fittest. It shows us how generous and loving and tender God is, but it also shows us his priority for our lives. Because you see, when we go back to the fall, injustice we see entered this world. It brought all sorts of evil, sickness, pain, death, on and on and on. This is not the way that life was meant to be, and it infuriates God. And so the beautiful hope of the gospel is not just that you and I are here to hear how we have salvation and everything is wonderful. The salvation of the individual soul was way too small of a task to send Christ to the cross. Rather, the beautiful hope of the gospel is that everything in this room, everyone in this room, and this entire world is not just going to find individual salvation, but we will all find restoration. That is, because of Christ, life will return to better than it was ever meant to be. And so the beautiful hope of the gospel, again, is, rev- is restoration. It's the climax of the book of Revelation. When Christ returns after that final battle, what does he say? Come quickly, come quickly, the darkness is coming. No, he says, I'm here to rule, and you will rule with me. And I'm not going to destroy all things and recreate a different universe and start all over. He says, I'm going to make all things new. That's the driving force of the scripture from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3 right through to Revelation 22. That is the plan that God lays forward for us, for the church, for Christ. Restoration in everything. We see this in the Old Testament. Close to God's very heart is this restoration. How? By caring for the poor. By caring for the oppressed, for the widow. Our God detests injustice. Exodus 22, 22 to 24, God there says, don't take advantage of the widow, don't take advantage of the fatherless. If you do, and if they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Deuteronomy 15 later on says, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them everything that they need. 
Or look at the Levitical laws that, that command that you leave a portion of your field for the poor so they can eat. This is how Ruth was able to survive. Or every three years, the nation was supposed to take an, every t- an extra tithe for the poor. Or every seven years, you weren't allowed to harvest your field specifically so that the poor could eat. Do you see God's plan for how he's going? Restoration, care for those in need. No one falls behind. We see practical examples of it in Scripture as well. The outcast Hagar, sought out by God, cared for her when no one else wanted her. Hannah, who begged the Lord for a child, and he gave her one. The widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, Elijah cared for her, raised her son to life. Even the prophets are filled with this type of speak. If you want to know what all the prophets are about, they're about this very issue. Why was Israel destroyed? Why did Judah go into exile? It's specifically because they oppressed the poor, the needy, the widow, the fatherless, and the downcast. The book of Habakkuk describes all these terrible sins by the people of Israel, and they're all about how they didn't care for their neighbor. Jeremiah, for example, says this, as the Lord speaking, he says, He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? To know God is to care for those in need. Scripture is this unfolding tale for how God is overthrowing injustice, for how he's bringing restoration, and then it finds its most visible telling in Jesus' coming. What did he do when he arrived? Did he overthrow Rome? Did he bring Israel back into the spotlight in the golden age? No. He went for the sick. He went for the broken. He went for the sinners. He went for the lame. He healed them. He gave sight to the blind. He did what J.R.R. Tolkien says in that beautiful sentence in, in The Lord of the Rings. He made all sad things untrue. Again, Christ didn't simply come to save lost souls. He came to restore the broken, to fill up the empty. Christ came to renew all things. And then the New Testament, including our passage, bears this out in great detail. We don't have time to dive into it. But what naturally follows, why we bring that up, why we're tracing James's logic there, is because if you and I are actually God's children, then we will hate injustice as he does. We'll ache to help the poor as he does. We'll go to Mexico. We'll seek them out as he does. We'll give of ourselves as he did. Again, look at Jesus. What does the book of Philippians tell us? He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but yet he lowered himself. He who was God became man. Christ Jesus tied himself to sinful flesh. He'll be in that flesh forever. He suffered with us. He's called a man of sorrows. It's hardly a befitting name for the king of the universe. And then he sacrificed his own life so that we could take up ours. How can our faith be a living faith if we don't hate injustice, if we're not visiting the lonely, if we're not caring for the widow, if we're not loving the orphan? How can we be God's children if we're not serving the underprivileged? How can our faith be real, James is asking us, if our hearts do not burn with a holy hatred of injustice? Another example of this, just look at the story of the rich young ruler. It's a man who comes to Jesus, a man who thinks, I've earned my way into heaven. And he goes to Jesus and he says, how do I inherit eternal life? And he knows what Jesus is going to say, right? Jesus says it's pretty simple, live pure, keep the law. You got the Ten Commandments, do them. And he says, 
way ahead of you. I've already done that. What does Jesus say? Does he come back and say, no, you didn't? That's why I'm going to the cross. What is wrong with you? You're deluded. No, he doesn't say that at all. What the Christ says to him is, fine, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Then come follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. What is Christ saying? Yes, keep the law. You want treasure in heaven? Bring the renewal that only the Son of God can bring. You see, true faith is one that lays down our lives for others as Christ laid down his life for us, not because we gain by it, but because our hearts are moved by the things that move the heart of God. And so this whole passage in James's whole book and all of Scripture is calling each one of us to action, not just to get on our knees and pray. And that's wonderful. Do not stop. Do it more. Not just cutting a check. That's wonderful. That's great. Do it more. He's calling us to action. And Jesus says actively, pick up your cross, follow him. And yes, it's going to cost us something. But when we confess our greatest comforts, it's not really a comfort. I mean, it is, but it isn't. Heidelberg won. Aren't we freely confessing? We're not our own. We belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The underpinning to that is he can ask you to do whatever he wants you to do. He owns you. He bought you with the blood of God himself. And so Christ's mission was to bring restoration by laying down his life. And what he commands us to do is to complete the work he started of bringing light to darkness, of making all crooked paths straight, of bringing a heavenly renewal to the broken in this life. The point that James is summarizing for us is that you and I are the healing salve of the gospel. We are called to go to the ends of the earth. We have the message. We have the hope. Do not dare to bottle it up and keep it in this room. Others need to know what is coming when Christ returns. And so ask yourself that question. What has your faith cost you? Are you serving? Does your heart ache for the widow and the orphan as God's does? For me too often, my answer is no. How is it possible then to say that we have a living faith? So what James summarizes for us again, you and I, we must resolve to go out and be perfect while serving the poor. Simple, right? Here's the issue. Has anyone in this room actually done that? No. Even with the Spirit of God in us, I'd be very worried if you put up your hand and said, I've been perfect and I've served fully, I've given everything and I've exemplified Christ. The answer, we've, we've all failed why then is James' book not an epistle of straw? Why is this not legalism? And how can this not become soul-crushing? Well, I hope and pray everyone in this room is convicted. That's my prayer when putting this sermon together. But as I said earlier, I also want you to be comforted. Understand again the only good works that can save you. The only good works that gain you entrance into the gates, the realms of heaven are the good works of Christ. And the gospel tells us that we are no more nor less loved by what we do. How can this not become soul-crushing? How can this not become legalism? Because James is asking you, is your faith alive? 
Yes, we're going to fall and fail at times. But he's saying, he's saying, is there evidence that Christ is in you? Are you a work in progress? He's saying, if you're not growing, if you're not changing, don't deceive yourself. The answer has to be no. It doesn't mean you can't go through dry times. It doesn't mean you can't go through times of regression. But are you not moved at all? Have you not been moved at all since you claim to have come to Christ? And what he says is, for all your church attendance, all your Bible reading, all your prayers, you have to realize there's a good chance that you've deceived yourselves. James talks about this in verse 26. He says that those who think that they're doing this but don't keep watch over their tongues, they actually have a false faith. But he's not just talking about idle speak. He's not just talking about the guy that uses curse words. He's diving into the motivational level there. Why do you do the things that you do? Because he's saying what an irreligious person does is he does them because it justifies to himself that he's a good person, that he has meaning, that he's doing something lasting, that he can save himself. And then he turns around and with his tongue he confesses that he thinks highly of himself. I've done it. I've been good. I don't need to repent. But the problem for each one of us in this room is that, of course, there's non-believers who have done this better than us. Of course, there's non-believers who are more generous and loving than we are. And that's why what James is driving at here is that the only good works that are accepted by God are those that come from a true faith and align with his word. In other words, the only good works that are accepted by God are post-conviction, post-conversion, post-coming to Christ. And so it's possible for each one of us here to go out and to spy an old lady going across the street and to say, I'm going to help her! And to cut a check, give to the food bank, to pray for our enemy. But don't be fooled. James is saying the only way that it's pleasing in God's sight is if it comes from a heart that belongs to Christ. Once again, James isn't talking about how you and I are saved. This is how it doesn't become crushing. This is how it doesn't become a faith question here. As in whether we're saved or not. Because he's not talking about how we're saved. He's talking about what our salvation produces. That is, the tree that we talked about in Mark 11, it didn't survive because figs hung from it. It would survive because its roots have gone down to find deep, and they've run deep to find water. And so all of this can be summarized by saying to have a pure religion is not about what you do, it's about to whom you run. Consistently come running to Christ, and the result will, that, will be that he will produce good works in you. If you say, I am a believer and never go to Christ, if you scorn him, it's very clear. Good works do you no good. They'll never save you. They'll never produce righteousness in you. But if you come to Christ, if you seek out his faith, James is clear, good works will flow abundantly. And so ultimately, this passage is a path to do this and a barometer for how we're doing it. The path is that God requires us to hate sin and to serve others, to grow in that. No Christian on earth could deny that. It's straight out of God's word. But the barometer is, is there evidence that you're doing this? If you're not, or sorry, if you are, if you're doing these things because you feel a greater love for God, if you do these things because you're moved by the Spirit, then fall to your knees, praise the Lord, because you belong to His and you are assured of eternal life and He is using you in His plan of restoration. If you sit here convicted and you fail that barometer test, if you see yourself regressing, if you think maybe Christ isn't in me, 
If you find love is scarce in your heart, what's the answer? Fall on your knees before Christ. Beg him to come into your life and to change you. You see, either way, we have to be running to Christ. Either way, we have to be going to Jesus. And as we do, we are guaranteed that even though at times Christians regress, we will see external, cha- external evidence of an internal change. How do we know this? How do we know that James isn't just copying out and saying, go and do this? It's all about Jesus. How do we know that he's saying, go to Jesus and this will happen? So if it's not happening, you are not in Jesus. How do we know it's this incredibly important distinction, perhaps the most important part of the passage? It's found in verse 25. It is so easy to gloss over, so easy to miss, and just like that, it can change our whole perspective of the passage to say, no, he is preaching legalism. I have to prove I'm in Christ. I have to prove I'm doing this. But in verse 25, he makes such a distinction to say, no, 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 no. You can rejoice if you're doing it because of Christ, and if you aren't doing it, come back to Christ, but everything is about Christ. What is that distinction? Verse 25, we are not blessed by our doing, as in how much we do. We are blessed in our doing. Because when we do and when we say, this isn't me, this is Christ, we are giving glory to the Father, glory to the Son, glory through the Spirit. It is evidence that He is working within us and we are assured that even though we don't deserve it, He is using us to bring the renewal that Christ began at the cross. So as we close, do not be afraid of work. Don't be afraid to work hard for the kingdom of God. Why should we ever fear that? True faith, true religion is one that aches for the things of God. Restoration in our souls and restoration in our world. Or as James says, remaining pure to God and serving those in need. And so we must be growing, we must be serving, we must be learning, we must be striving, but it can only be because the Lord is changing us from the inside out. Not because we sat here convicted and said, I'm going to prove to God that I'm worth it. You see, if we practice our spiritual disciplines and yet we have no desire to slay sin, no desire to serve others, James says you've deceived yourself. You're foolish as someone who studies themselves in a mirror only to walk away and immediately forget what you look like. So people of God, don't forget. Never forget. You are the image of God. You are the ones he loved so much that he died for. You are the ones he sent his spirit to indwell. As Ephesians 2.10, we read it earlier, said, we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand. If you're in him, you will do it. Don't forget when you go out and serve. Don't second-guess this. You are Christ's possession. You are his hands and his feet on earth. You are tasked with bringing the hope to the nations. But John 15, 5, apart from him, you can do nothing. To summarize this whole thing, to take James' whole passage and to put it in just a few sentences, he is saying this, work hard, resolve to be better. But do that by resolving to spend more time with Jesus. As you gaze on his face, the spirit within you will be stirred up to works of service. You will bring heavenly renewal, and at the same time, you will be given an unshakable assurance because it proves that your faith is not dead, but because its roots have found living water, because you are producing fruits from that living water, your faith is very much alive.
go out and work. People need the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the difficult messages, the, the ones at times that are convicting, and I pray this is convicting. Help us to go out and work, Lord. But help us never to dare to endeavor to do it without first going to Christ. Help us in our works to realize that we aren't blessed because we say, now I'm doing my work, so I, I'm loved, I'm good. But to say, I want to do this, that means Christ is in me. Praise the Lord. Fill us with the hope of the gospel. Change us by your grace. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. Lord, I pray everyone in this room goes out and does that, that we can be the heavenly renewal. And I pray that when Pastor Jacob comes and he begins to preach, that you bless this pulpit. Bless this pulpit that the true gospel is preached each and every week, that it changes hearts and lives, that it stirs them up to gaze on the face of the Father through Christ by the power of the Spirit, so that we look at you and just ache to spread your name. Bless this pulpit. Bless this church. Bless this city. And bless the name of the Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.